As we start, I saw her earlier. Is Kate Eccles in here? I saw her earlier. She might be in the nursery with Jace. Oh, Joseph is here. Joseph, can you say hi? Um, can you bring Kate in at the, before the benediction? I'd love to introduce her to the congregation. Kate is our new youth ministry leader. She has a young one. And I think, assuming we won't wake up Jace, we can always wait. We don't want to wake up a sleeping baby. Um, and so I want to introduce to, uh, you to her in person. Uh, thanks for letting me know, Joseph. Um, question. When people ask you who your favorite Bible character is, how many of you are quick to respond with the name Chloe? Anybody? Bill. Bill. You must have read the passage before we got to it. Um, I'm going to share why that might be the case after this. Um, she's a great contributor to peace, purity, and unity in the church. Our passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. And it says this. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Sounds wonderful, right? My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, except for Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and together we say, thanks be to God. The Apostle Paul begins this passage by saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Paul addresses this church in Corinth as brothers and sisters. This is noteworthy because the reality is that the church in Corinth was actually a very diverse group of people. They were diverse in age. They were diverse in life experiences and worldviews, race, ethnicity, religious experiences, there was a lot of differences in the people who made up the church of Corinth. Calling the people of Corinth brothers and sisters suggests that these people who actually knew themselves to be very different from one another, they were actually for, far more similar than they ever imagined. Paul is communicating the reality that there might be differences between each other. And by the way, thank the Lord for that, right? It would be a pretty boring world if everyone was like me or if everyone was just like you. But the difference that existed between the people of this church did not give them any reason for them to not be united with one another. United so close that he is calling them brothers and sisters as if they're part of the same family. By referring to the church in Corinth as brothers and sisters, Paul is saying that this group of people, which saw themselves as very different, actually has exponentially more in common than they have differences. And then he pleads with them. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, all of you agree with one another in what you say. There's no divisions to be among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and in thought. All of you, this whole church, agreeing with one another, no divisions, perfectly united in mind and thought. He knows he's talking to a church, right? How does he expect complete alignment, complete agreement, unity, and no divisions among them? Of all the things Paul could have pleaded these people for, of all the things he could have prioritized or begged them for, why is it so important that they agreed? Why is it so important that they showed the world unity? Why is it so important that there was going to be no divisions among them? I mean, the church in Corinth, we know this church had its issues. They had some major issues. They have an issue that Paul famously says, uh, they had an issue of sexual immorality in the church that Paul famously said is worse than even the immorality of the pagans. That must have been pretty bad. Why didn't he prioritize that? They also had a problem of people getting drunk during communion. Can you imagine? That's a big issue. Why didn't he prioritize that? The church in Corinth was known for taking on the values of the city rather than bringing the values of the kingdom of God to the city. That's an issue. Why did he not prioritize that? With all these pressing, significant issues going on in this church that everyone can very well see, why does he plead for them to have unity and to get rid of divisions? Being involved in a Presbyterian church for a while now, at the church I was at previously before here, so coming up on 20 years, I've regularly and routinely heard this phrase that people talk about a lot, the peace, purity, and unity of the church. And maybe I'm being a little bit too vulnerable here. But to me, for a long time, it was a nice-sounding phrase. It's easy to remember. It rolls off the tongue a lot. So that must be why people talk about it all the time. But my initial reaction to this phrase was actually a little bit confused. At the time, I didn't understand why the peace, purity, and unity of the church was such a priority. I mean, of course you want peace, purity, and unity in a church. That's nice. But my take on things years ago was that unity is great, and of course you want peace and unity. However, isn't it more important to be right about things? Isn't it more important to make sure you're doing the right thing all the time? Isn't being accurate a little, bit more in, uh, a little bit more important than just trying to gather consensus and agreement? Because you can have a group of people find consensus on some things that are far from accurate, correct? We've seen that before. So I always thought that being right about issues and doing the right thing was more of a priority than finding peace, purity, and unity in a group of people, even a church. I don't think that way anymore. And I think this is why Paul is prioritizing agreement and by bringing down divisions and finding unity, even at a time when there was real pressing issues in the church that everyone was able to see. Now I tend to agree with the people that take the stance of the theologian Rupertus Melanus. That sounds like a very smart guy, right? I agree with him and people who align with him. That say, in essentials, unity. Let me say that again. I want to be clear about that. In the things that we find essential, we need absolute unity. 
However, in non-essentials, we give a little bit of liberty, but in all things, we offer charity to one another. Because I've seen how if you go back 50 years, if you go back 100 years, if you go back 1,000 years, and you look back at what people were convinced they were right on, and people were convinced this is worth dividing over, and you consider some of those issues, whether it's women in ministry, or the value of different races, or what you thought about the world being around, or what exactly happens at communion, and you look back at those issues now, many of those issues, we would be like, they're just not that important anymore. It probably wasn't worth dividing over. You could have stayed together on this one. In a lot of examples, time has proven that those people who caused the division, because they were absolutely convinced that they were right on this issue, they actually weren't right at all. And sacrificing peace and purity and unity and moving forward together probably wasn't the best thing for the church. Same as today, the things that we are probably convinced we are absolutely right on, and I'm talking about the non-essential thing, not the essential things, the things that we think we're right on, the things that we're tempted to divide on in 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, the things that we probably think we're absolutely right on, they might take a different view of it. And so we give grace. We give charity. We prioritize unity and moving forward together, just like Paul says. And so unity, togetherness, agreement, no division, that's all in this passage. And that is the priority. That's why the Presbyterian Church talks about the peace, purity, and unity of the church, because we stay together. I don't know if you've ever seen this letter. It's a letter I sent to Richard that I saw floating around the internet. We'll put it up there in a little bit. Um, It's from 1968 when they didn't have it floating around the internet, but they got a hold of it now. And it's uh, and it 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 seems it's from a pastor um, who we kind of blocked out the name because it's not important who it is. Um, But we have a lot of his books in our church library, and uh, he wrote this letter in 1968, and it it it's to um, Wheaton College which is probably one of the most respected and well-known Christian colleges at the time. And now, a lot of Christian groups will use this letter as an example of why we give each other grace, why we give each other charity. The letter says um, to the president, the then president of Wheaton College, it says, Dear Sir, recently this report came into my hands and I find it very difficult to believe. It seems incredible that a Christian college could participate in honoring an outright liberal, heretic, nonviolent demonstration that resulted in deaths. And he goes on to talk about why he won't support this school because they were honoring Martin Luther King Jr. At one time, for whatever reason... I'm sure he was thought he was right on this issue. And he was convinced that protesting this honoring of Martin Luther King Jr. was something that was worth being divisive and sacrificing unity and grace and charity to one another. But 50 years later, I would imagine he probably wants this letter back. Because now, 50 years later, this letter is now being used by Christian groups as an example and the danger of being so quick to be divisive. And an example of why Christians, we need to prioritize peace, purity, and unity of the church moving forward together. Things change. Unity is more important. 
than the illusion of always having to be right. I've had to learn this. We know this because in our passage, even when there are real pressing issues like the ones that face the church in Corinth, Paul pleads with them. He prioritizes unity and agreement. And Paul cares so much about this because this is what Jesus cared about too. In John, John chapter 17, the author John, he quotes Jesus' prayer. He writes about Jesus' prayer, his one prayer for us. He says, my prayer is not just for them alone, not just the disciples. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That, in, that all of them, Jesus says, may be one. Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is important to the Presbyterian church. It's important to Paul because in the, in the beginning, it was important to Jesus. Paul prioritizes unity, oneness, no divisions, because that's what Jesus prioritized too. We have way more in common than differences. Henry Nouwen, in his book, With Open Hands, he says, Across all barriers of land and language, wealth and poverty, knowledge and ignorance, and by the way, all of those differences were present in the church of Corinth. Henry Nouwen says, We are one, created from the same dust, subject to the same laws, destined to the same end. With that in mind, with that compassion, he says, In the face of the oppressed, we can see our own face. In the hands of the oppressors, we recognize our own hands. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is our blood. Their pain is our pain. And then I love this. He says their smile is our smile as well. We have way more in common than we have differences. But we have to ask, what about this woman, Chloe? What happens when we disagree? Because that's going to happen. In any sort of uh, population that has any type of diversity, there's going to be disagreement, right? What do we do then? Let's keep reading in verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. And others, I follow Cephas. And still others, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified with you? Have you been baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you. And then he goes on to list all the people he baptized. So in their church, people are disagreeing. They're having quarrels about which teacher, which authority figure that they are following. Some say, I love Paul. Some say are saying, I love Apollos or Cephas, and then some people come in and say, I follow Christ, which always ends the discussion, because how do you argue with that? And Paul says that all this arguing, all this quarrel, it's not helpful at all. You're missing the point. Paul, Apollos, whatever leader you're talking about, it's their point, it's their job to point towards Jesus. They are not the ones to get the attention. But often overlooked is this woman, Chloe, and her household. Chloe was probably one of the leaders of this church in Corinth during this very divisive time when there were some really pressing issues going on in the church. It's noteworthy that Paul says that the household belongs to Chloe and not her husband if there was a husband or some other man. 
Chloe was an extraordinary woman. And the fact that she had her own household, that could include her nuclear family, extended family, servants. This could be a big group of people. And Chloe and her household, there is no doubt that they loved their church. And Chloe and her household, they wanted their church to be as effective as possible of spreading this new good news that they heard about Jesus to their city of Corinth. And Chloe and her household, they're watching all this fighting. They're watching all this quarreling and all this division of leadership going on. And I would imagine that Chloe and her household, they had their own opinions on everything being discussed. I'm sure they weren't above that. I'm sure they preferred one of the preachers or one of the teachers and so on. I'm sure they could have easily jumped in and contributed to all of this quarreling and fighting and gossip and everything like that. But I think that Paul is using Chloe and her household an example of how to achieve and how to work towards unity even when there's diversity among people. Chloe is an extraordinary woman. So Chloe and her household, they see this problem, this senseless arguing, and they see the divisions, and it's not headed towards redemption. It's not headed towards reconciliation. So they're frustrated by this because they're saying, we're not being effective. And they're above this, and they're not going to sink down to that level. And think about it. What could Chloe have done at this point? What could she have done with probably her frustrations? Do you think that she could have complained to others in the church? Absolutely. Would that have helped move it towards reconciliation? No. Do you think that she could have done some anonymous complaining? Do you think that she could have expressed her displeasure with Paul for not handling this quickly? Would any of that have helped at getting to reconciliation and redemption? No, that's the goal. Do you think that maybe she could have engaged in some gossip? She could have, but she didn't. That's not what she does. Chloe is an extraordinary woman. Paul writes, and I quote, Chloe's household has informed me that there are quarrels among you. Chloe and her household took their concerns straight to Paul, the one person who could actually do something about this, the one person who could actually bring healing and moving forward together. They didn't go through the route of other people. They didn't gossip. They didn't hold on to their concerns without sharing it in a way that's productive. They didn't use other people as a scapegoat for their problem. They went straight to Paul because Paul could do something about this to help achieve Jesus' prayer of being one. And they didn't do it anonymously either. They did it directly, face to face. This was done so above board. This was done with so much transparency. This was done in such a healthy way that Paul is even comfortable using Chloe and her household as an example to a letter to the entire church. This is heroic stuff. This is bringing about the unity that Jesus prays for. This is a great example of how we maintain and how we work towards unity even when there are differences in opinion. You take your issue to the person who can actually do something about it with the goal of reconciliation in mind because that's where we're all headed. And that's exactly what Chloe does. And what did Chloe and her household, why did they handle it this way? Because like we said before, I'm sure they loved their church. 
I'm sure they wanted their church to be as, effectively, as, hum, as eff- effective as humanly possible in sharing this good news about Jesus with their community. And I'd imagine by sitting under the teachers that are listed before, that they knew that this is Jesus' instructions on how to deal with problems with people in your life. Matthew 18 talks about how Jesus instructs people to, to handle things. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of them. Go straight to them. No gossip. Don't talk to anybody else. If they listen to you, you've won them over. In other words, you've gotten to the reconciliation. You've gotten to the redemption. You're moving forward together. There's no division. That's a beautiful thing. But if they don't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Not sure what that means, but I don't think it's kind. (laughs) Also, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're participating in worship like all of us are right now, and there you remember that a brother or sister, again, the language of family, having things in common, so there's so much unity that you're compared to a family. Your brother or sister has something against you. It doesn't have to be saying it could be anything. Something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. In other words, stop the worship experience. First, go and reconcile to them because that's the goal, reconciliation and restoration. And then come back to offer uh, your gift at the altar. And he says, settle matters quickly. That's how Jesus instructs us to keep unity when there is differences among us. That is why Paul prioritizes unity even to the church of Corinth when there are very real pressing issues. That's why Paul is saying that Chloe and her household They did it the right way. Our passage finishes with Paul saying that his role is to preach the good news of the the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Unity, oneness, bringing down walls of division. I think you would agree that demands the power of the cross. It's not done with human effort. The power of the cross is letting go, is having God work through you and letting go of your preferences, your advantages, what you want, your well-being, even your life for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the whole. That's the whole message of the cross. That's the power of the cross. Chloe, an extraordinary woman, and her household could have held on to their opinions and kept it to themselves. They could have joined the division, they could have joined the gossip, they could have joined the quarrels that were a part of their church. They could have worked to get things the way that they wanted it, but they didn't do that because that would be ordinary. Chloe was extraordinary. Chloe and her household, they put aside their preferences, which you know they had preferences, to go straight to Paul who could actually bring redemption and understanding and help people move forward together. That's the goal. It's oneness. It's reconciliation. The setting side of what's important to you for the healing of others. That either comes across as foolishness to you, and according to Paul, 
to that crowd, they're perishing. Or you do that like Chloe did because you recognize that as the gospel and the power of God. May we be like Chloe. May Chloe actually be one of the first people that come to mind when people say, who is your, one of your biblical heroes? May we seek reconciliation and redemption. May we be people who don't just talk about it, but we seek peace, purity, and unity of the church, even when there are differences. May we follow the way of Jesus and settle matters quickly, face to face, because that is extraordinary, and the world needs that. May the peace and purity and unity go far beyond this church walls or this church campus, and may it invade our families, our friend groups, our workplaces, wherever God places us. May we be a people of peace, purity, and unity because that life is extraordinary. And that's what Jesus' prayer is for us. May that be true of us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.